Good morning. Good morning. Morning, everybody, and uh, maybe a good evening to some of you, depending on when you're watching this. Um, welcome to this latest cost chat between friends uh, run by Practico. Um, the, the friends are, as usual, um, Andy Ellis, Managing Director of Practico, mm -hmm. and myself, Jeremy Morgan, Retired Cost Silk and Consultant to Practico. And we're delighted to invite today our, um, our guest, Alicia Chiu, um, a rising star of costs in Hailsham Chambers, and uh, someone who has got lots of things to say about the topics we're going to look at this morning. Um, just as a reminder to those who are new to this process, um, you don't need to take extensive notes of cases or anything like that, because the summary will be sent out to anybody who, has, uh, who asks for it or who's on the mailing list of Practico. And there will also be a, um, a video version of this available on the usual uh, sites. Um, the topics today, there are going to be three uh, in principle. We probably stray into other areas as well. Um, but the first is a brief consideration of a very interesting decision of Cost Judge Leonard in the case called Reed and Woodward. Um, I won't go into further detail at this stage. I'll leave that to Alicia to do. Secondly, um, a brief look at the case of Deutsche Bank and Sebastian, the, um, which is a, a long-running case with lots of decisions. But in this particular context, it's the problems on detailed assessment in a very, very large case when um, the records are not all that they might be, or even the records are in the, in the ether all that they might be. They're not readily accessible for the purpose of the assessment. And the third is a uh, look at forthcoming civil procedure rule change um, coming into effect in April on qualified one-way cost sharing. And although those of you who don't do personal injury work might think, oh, well, that's not for me, it actually is quite interesting as an instance of the uh, Supreme Court in this particular case having declined, uh, having made a decision, but really said it's not a matter for us. We're not very good at this sort of thing. It's a matter for the rule committee, which decides policy. And um, this is what the rule committee then does with what they're uh, asked to do by the Supreme Court. Anyway, um, I'll hand over to Alicia and uh, we'll start off with the case of Reed and Woodward. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, thanks very much for inviting me along today. It's, yeah, the case of Reed and Woodward is an interesting one because it raises a couple of issues that probably have um, illustrated some issues of wider application. So firstly, I think it's quite a good example about why lawyers or barristers shouldn't represent themselves ever, um, because this is this is a, a very um, experienced barrister, but not in the, the field of costs, trying to, for example, draft his own points of dispute, which didn't go very well for him. Um, but also the, the two issues that I think we can we can look at today are probably firstly whether when it's worth challenging whether or not there was a retainer in place um, and the threshold for that. And secondly, considering how the court will view a defendant's bill or a receiving party's bill, where they haven't split it between the receiving party and the other defendants that didn't receive um, an order for costs, because in this case, there was no real division provided in the bill. And that was um, very much something that Judge Leonard wasn't impressed with. 
So this all arose out of a barrister having some um, bad building work done in his house. Um, and rather than, he did instruct solicitors initially to represent him in the trial. The, what he did was he sued both the building company and the director of the building company personally. And during the course of the trial, or during the course of, of the lead up to the trial, the building company went into voluntary liquidation. And so he was left with only a claim against the company director. And that was always going to be a more difficult claim to bring. The cost position in the background was slightly complex because Daz Legal were, um, were acting because there was a legal expenses indemnity for the, um, for the company initially. And then over time, um, the second defendant, the director, was able to, um, to get cover under the same policy. So initially he had his own solicitors and then they were both represented by Daz Legal. Um, and so Daz were, were on the record for both defendants for some time. They came off when the defendant's company went on into voluntary liquidation. And then the, the order was made at trial that uh, the second defendant had won. Um, he, he did not have personal responsibility for the various uh, work that had gone wrong on the barrister's house. And so then there was a question of what costs the, the barrister claimant would have to pay. And in the costs, uh, in, in the cost dispute, the barrister represented himself, which was not ideal. Um, the, <laughs> the comments that Judge Leonard make, I think, would make send most of us um, into a state of some fear about <laughs> when he was talking about the pods. He said, meaning no disrespect to the claimant, they tend to prolixity and repetition, which I think isn't something anyone really wants to be said about their, their drafting. Um, but the, the issues that were being taken were pretty scattergun as well. There wasn't really any strategy behind the disputes that were being raised. So the first main dispute was that the claimant said, in fact, Daz was only acting for the company and was never acting for the company director, the second defendant. And he also was very suspicious that CFAs had only come to light at the end of the trial um, and considered these to be um, hooked up effectively forgeries. Now, obviously, Cost Judge Leonard didn't um, take that on its face value and, and looked at the case more carefully. It was quite prepared to find that had it been a CFA throughout and that it was quite unlikely that Daz would have agreed to act for the second defendant um, for free, effectively, unless he won. Um, so it was that those points, I think, although there was quite a lot of the judgment spent dealing with those issues, fundamentally, they didn't have much hope of succeeding. Um, I think that it would take quite a lot for a court to find that there was no retainer at all where you have a solicitor's firm on record. Um, for for a particular defendant, and and also the the question of whether or not the CFA applied. Of course, it was a CFA that could apply for the entirety of the case, even if it was only entered into um, later down the line. It can have a retrospective effective date. So, so again, the judge found that the claimant had failed to displace that assumption that there was a retainer. But the the more complex issue really is to do with the division between the two defendants, because what Daz had somewhat um, interestingly chosen to do was to put all of the costs effectively they could possibly bring in. The second defendant was their client for a large period. 
But there were a lot of costs that were really only attributable to the company, the, the first defendant that had gone under during the course of proceedings. And what will be interesting to see really will be the next stage of this, because the, the issue was raised in general terms by cost judge Leonard. And the second defendant was very much told they would need to show the division between the two defendants. But it'll be interesting to see how that's actually done, because lots of the issues were parasitic. So the, the trial was about the second defendant, but the initial claim had been really directed to the company. The company was said to have done a defective workmanship and also to have brought contaminated waste onto the claimant's property. And so the second defendant was said to be personally responsible for those two things, rather than just acting in his role as a, as a company director. Right. And, um, and what's quite tricky there is that effectively the claimant had to win against the first defendant, had to prove that there had been defective workmanship, had to prove that there had been um, this contaminated waste brought onto the property, if he was going to have any hope of winning against the second defendant. So... The question is, how is the court then going to separate out what was only relating to the first defendant and what should be attributed to them? Because you've got you've got a claim that effectively needed all of those elements to be proved in order for the second defendant to be found liable. So the court was wasn't impressed with claiming, for example, all of counsel's fees on these issues and said you've got to you've got to divide it up. But how that exactly will be done will probably be quite interesting to see um, as the case progresses, if if we see another judgment in, in the case. So I think that's probably um, all we need to talk about in terms of Freedom Woodward. Um, it is very much... A, a I war... just add... Yes, please go ahead. Jerry. Sorry, no, do your, mm. your winding up. I, I just wanted to add, there's one other issue, which was also quite interesting in connection with budgeting. Yes. Um, which is there was a budget. The defendant's costs were budgeted. And of course, um, the same solicitor's action for first and second defendants. Second defendant um, had uh, won and the first defendant had lost, although, mm -hmm. you know, sometime, sometime previously. But there were these budgets. And the question was, how does the budget apply in a situation where um, it applies to all the costs incurred by those solicitors for both defendants, but only one is entitled to costs. Mm. And effectively, the, the cost judge decided that um, the, the the budget would act as a cap, so the second defendant being entitled to costs would not get um, more than the budgeted amount, but the, it was free to go below the budget on, on areas where it perhaps wouldn't have done against a single defendant because um, there was the question of these costs having been budgeted for two for two clients, effectively, only one yes. of whom is entitled to costs. I thought that was quite an interesting little footnote on the question of, of budgeting. Definitely. And it is it is interesting because you, you hope they're going to have quite a lot of certainty with the budgeting, I think. But actually, when, when you've got these sorts of issues come up, then it's not at all obvious necessarily what the recovery is going to be <clears throat> at the end of the case. So, yeah, I think it is interesting. Um, but I was I was quite amused by Cost Judge Leonard very politely I think trying to trying to tease out what could actually be argued and what really needed to be let go by by the claimant, um, which in some ways was difficult because uh, there's also some other some other points that you think might have been taken and weren't. So it, it is yet another um, illustration of why um, a, a lawyer active in themselves is the worst possible. 
um, combination. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I, I, I just wondered if if the phone rang and it was a, a barrister um, litigant in person seeking instructions from a cost lawyer, or seeking to instruct a cost lawyer to represent them in a building dispute with which they were unsuccessful. Um, just quite how much we'd relish taking that phone call. Mm. Um, <laughs> not very much. So, win <laughs> situation. This isn't <laughs> just for the avoidance of doubt. This isn't practical. So, please come, litigants in person, especially if you're barristers. <laughs> <laughs> the nightmare client, some might think. <laughs> well, I, I represent... Isn't there a cab rank principle for costs lawyers? <laughs> no, I don't think there is. <laughs> Absolutely not. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. However, Specialist Chambers, you know, Hailsham, for example, right up your alley. Yeah. <laughs> Look how much better the point of dispute <laughs> might have been. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Anyway, I'll a footnote on that. No, it's, sorry, Ali. It, it, it's just... It, it, it's just interesting, you know, obviously from people at the coalface that we do have more published judgments of first instance uh, uh, decisions. Not that they're binding, you know, it's just but they are interesting and it's just good to be able to air these uh, the, the, these issues when they come up. Certainly interesting to people in the trade, as it were. Yeah, no, I, I agree, Andy, and it's particularly when you see, I mean, all this goes back to um, decision of the House of Lords in a case called Medway Oil, the, the question of division. Which is one of the most complicated House of Laws decisions I've ever read. I've never, I still don't understand what they decided because each judge gave a different um, judgment. Um, but what's you, you can read that highfalutin, if you like, principle. But to see how it's applied in practice is really, really useful for not only for cost lawyers but for solicitors as well because you, you need to understand these things. Exactly. It's 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 money to the client. Yes, precisely. Thank you. That was all from me. Anyway, um. We wanted to move on then to um, the Deutsche Bank case, which uh, I think is um, <laughs> probably terrifying to everybody. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Jeremy, was there anything you wanted to say before I sort of cracked into um, into Deutsche Bank? Because I know I know it's a case that's interested quite a lot of people to see what happens when you get these enormous bills come through. Um, and actually, again, it's it's quite a good example of a case where the party, the paying party, has taken a huge number of points, only some of which have got any merit. Um, but this is this is, and you'll all remember this, I'm sure. Um, it's judgment ordered of um, 245 million US dollars, and then in terms of the cost, the defendant had already paid 32 million um, plus VAT on account before the detailed assessment started. Um, now, because the bill itself was going to be so large, they claimed just over fifty-eight million pounds in terms of their costs, um, and that was representing eighty-five percent costs award in in the trial. But the claimant had wanted to try and, which was the receiving party, wanted to try and split the detailed assessment into various stages, um, and actually that was rejected by the judge. So. They had asked to split initially into preliminary issues, including fees, and then to serve a hybrid bill in three parts chronologically. But the judge wasn't um, wasn't prepared to allow that because the problem was then the receiving the paying party had no idea what they would actually be on the hook for. They weren't going to see the total from the start, 
Um, and obviously that really scuppers the chance to make proper offers. So that was rejected. But, you know, we'll come on once we've talked about the case, I think we can come on to what else maybe um, could have been offered by, by Deutsche Bank, because actually there must have been a better way of, of managing this. It was a case where it ran, the detailed assessment ran into 97 days. Um, 97 days, about 40 extempore judgments. And it ran from 2020 into 2022. There were um, over 1,500 items on the bill. Um, the document schedules ran into 2,000 pages. So this was an enormously complex bill. And the points of dispute were, were extremely lengthy. The composite document, I think, was 483 pages for the replies alone. So we're looking at an incredibly complex, detailed set of, um, of bills and points of dispute. And every single issue was taken, which um, the parties weren't prepared to even settle once they got an indication from the court. So say the judge is saying, well, I'm allowing X amount, or X percentage or X proportion. The parties weren't prepared to then go through the items and even agree those that category. It all had to be done by the court. Now, I think one of the things that we we can probably see from this is there's this criticism about the documentation and the information actually available about what the bill, what the time was being spent on. So we've got these fee earners working really long hours. They're not prioritizing how they're recording their time, no doubt because they're under enormous pressure while they're running this case. But it means that you have uh, then an exercise in what the judge described as forensic archaeology, because you have the cost lawyers then having to go back to these servers and try and piece together what was happening, because the time recordings are so general and and so and for such long periods of time where very little information is being provided about what the work what the work requires. So he said the files were stored on a server in no obvious order, which precluded any pre-reading. Um, and the, the lawyers simply weren't able to find a large proportion of the documents that existed at the time the work was done. Now, I have some sympathy for that because it was quite a long period of time from when the work was done and the time when the detailed assessment was being carried out. But the problem was that when you've got these very vague time entries that don't tell you what um, is being worked on and you've got files stored on a server that are basically impossible to piece together after the event, you are left with very little for the cost lawyers to work with fundamentally. And it's got to come out down to that judgment, that educated understanding of the case. But then it's quite hard to defend it. So um, you, at the end of all of this, 97 days of arguing about every single possible point that the receiving party could take, the costs have been ordered in the, on the indemnity basis. Um, but ultimately... Mr. Vic, the paying party, had to pay only 70% of the costs um, of the detailed assessment. And one of the reasons for that was that there had been some errors actually in the bill um, regarding the cost of the initial margin, which should never have been claimed. And rather than bending over backwards to get it right, in fact, those parts of the bill weren't corrected. And the judge really did not. Um, think that that was acceptable. So that was a big reason why he was prepared to reduce the cost of the detailed assessment. But to lose 30% of your detailed assessment cost when you've been running it for that long is a big chunk of costs. Um, and, you know, I can imagine 
that risk maybe didn't seem so obvious at the start of, of this proceeding. So it's really a, a, quite a wake up call, I think, to us all about what happens when you end up with these enormous bills and enormously lengthy detailed assessments and what can go wrong, even when things um, really looked quite good probably for, for the claimant when they started trying to put their bill together. Mm. Um, Andy, what's your take on that? Because you've got a lot of experience of putting together large bills um sometimes under pressure of time and sometimes yeah. without um the, the best records underlying them what, what, what's your take on this case i mean is it, what did they have it coming to them or was it actually something which we should all be terribly sympathetic with no i i, I think um well without it's going to sound as if i'm sitting on the fence but um i i think this is a very peculiar set of circumstances in high value commercial litigation to have a paying party who uh, refuses to engage in negotiations, it refuses to make any form of offer that might be accepted, and insists on a line-by-line -line assessment of a bill this size. Now, that that is that I would suggest is very unusual, which is why we haven't seen much any reported decisions uh, about how to go about it, which is why. We always thought this was a really interesting case and have been following it since the first directions hearing. Uh, well, from a distance, we've been following it from the first directions hearing. Um, so I am I am sympathetic to the receiving party here um, to the extent that um, it seems to me to be the way that litigation has gone. Heavy litigation um, has been um, run mainly with electronic files for donkey's years now. Mm -hmm. um, and there isn't one standard for how to run it. There isn't something that resembles an old-fashioned paper case file. Um, and therefore, the forensic archaeology that uh, is referred to here uh, in a sort of, sort of pejorative way um, is something that necessarily has to has to happen. So so I'm sympathetic to the I'm sympathetic to the to the um to the context in which this was this this was uh, um uh, th this case was conducted. Um where I think um easy to say with hindsight, but where I think strategically they went wrong was from the beginning, which is I disagree that um in principle it is not necessary or not advisable to go to the court for directions even before you draw a bill in a case this large as to how you might go around it and how you might find a way to make the process more manageable. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think but strategically, I think the, the mistake they made is the one that Alicia relighted on right at the beginning, which is, which is that at the very least, the paying party should, at the earliest possible stage, have a... Uh, a, a summary of controlled data that lassoes the entirety of the cost of the, uh, of the size of the bill that they should be facing. That, that to me has to be, is fundamental. And I think it was, a, it was a tactical error to even attempt to say, can we do it in chunks? Can we do, can, can we do it in, in stages? Um, and in fact, I think that early directions here were part of the cost that were actually disallowed, as it were, uh, to, to be recovered even though there was never an offer on the table or a part of it, so on and so forth. Um, the, the, the other um, debate, which is um, 
a bit sort of cost nerdy, but it comes up a lot on detailed assessment, is what do you do about block time recording? Mm-hmm. And this is something that we we face all the time because you 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 know inevitably cases like this you know which is an enormous high value case that required a team fully justified magic circle firm etc cetera, etc. Cetera. The fact of the matter is, as we all know, that human nature is such that people will start to record their time on the basis of they're logged onto a job, they're clocking on in the morning, they're clocking off at night, maybe you know at lunchtime and back again, and then there may be a list of things that they're doing that day. At best, you know, the narrative field of, of a computerized time recording system has effectively replaced the attendance note you know, that, that used to be on farms. So that and uh, you have this you have this situation where for day upon day, um, you can you can split those entries as you're probably required to do in perfect sense. Now, not only just to identify phase and task, but also the activities that were that, that were going on. But in an attempt to do that, is always going to be educated guesswork. So the time is contemporaneously recorded. That's not estimated. It's the apportionment of that time within various activities that uh, uh, task activities that is um, that, that is estimated. And um, the debate, and I don't think there is a right answer to this, I think it's very fact sensitive, is, is it better to leave it as a block in the knowledge that you're going to have to produce a electronic or otherwise paper trail of evidence of work product that went on during that uh, during that day to justify so that the, the cost judge can, can take a view as to how much time how much time they are going to allow out of the 11 hours of, you know, that, that, that is claimed in that day? Or have you actually got to split that up as the as, as the practice direction requires you to um, and, uh, uh, and, and, and treat it in a more in a more granular fashion uh, and slightly more sporadically as it might appear throughout the bill? Well, you know, I'm in favour of perhaps two ways of looking at it, either um, a slightly more stand back, generalised, generalised approach, um, or some form of sampling of, so, of, of, let's say, you know, each side chooses six periods where they drill down into much more depth and then see if the pattern emerges. Now, I think that the latter course, that's, that's like quite a, quite, quite, quite a, you know, a logical approach. But in this case, you can tell it would have fallen down because it requires a degree of cooperation between mm. the And there was clearly none from the paying party. So that never would have happened. Um, so uh, I, I think that because it probably, Freshfield's approach probably started on the wrong premise, it was never going to end well, you know, from that point of view. But, you know, in terms of the day-to-day work of the cost lawyers, Probably going back many years ago, you know, in terms of where the, you know when the work was done, um, litigation teams could have been split up, gone to the four winds, people have moved on, so on and so forth. You know, very very hard to do. Um, and however good the practice management systems are that law firms run, um, you know, they're as good as the um, level of diligence that goes into um, uh, organising them. And, you know, there are going to be good days, bad days, 
you know, well-recorded cases, badly recorded cases. Um, and uh, I was going to ask you about practice management systems, because in a sense, part of the problem here seems to have been that right, you had, uh, say, large block items with um, large amounts of time um, not justified. And so someone has a go and say, well, it was probably about this. And then they say, well, produce some work product to show um, why it's about that. And then you can't find it on the system. Is that common? I mean, or, or should, should are some systems capable of doing that thing rather more easily? I, I, I think a lot of systems are capable of it. I mean, I, I would have, I would, uh, we've, 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 we know more about it now than we might have done a couple of years ago because of the because mm. cloud systems now require uh, now enable enterprise systems to be used by smaller firms. So you know, without giving them an advert, because I'm not actually their biggest fan, um, we use uh, we now use iManage ourselves, which is a, a a big practice management document management system that probably half of the top two hundred firms. Uh, law firms use, and we thought, you know, that and, and that we we can now access that, even though we're a uh, we're very much a small uh, enterprise. And what it's really good <coughs> is um, filing emails, which mm. most document management systems aren't. And that's frankly, you know, that that that's that's still how things run. You know, I mean, a lot of people think you know, emails old tech now. Uh, but nevertheless, that is very much uh, in the same way that uh, solicitors were the last people to give up faxing. <laughs> they'll also be the last people now to give up to give up email. Um, but it, it, it's very good for that. And it's very, very good if used correctly um, for uh, uh, version control. Mm. So, you know, something that, you know, typically happens on large cases which is, uh, you know, an iterative approach to um, the drafting of uh, witness statements, pleadings, even, you know, key, you know, tactical and strategic correspondence. Um, you can go through and unveil, you know, uh, uh, the, 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 different, uh, the different versions that have, uh, have, have um, been worked on in draft, which is quite important, which is exactly the sort of stuff that's quite important to produce. On um, on a detailed assessment, when uh, you know for the twentieth day in a row, somebody's saying, "Are you still working on that witness statement?" You know what we've actually doing. Well, I mean, you know, there is there is an audit trail um, for it within the uh, within the practice management system. What how you show that on a common platform to a cost judge is uh, is is another you know also quite difficult question, and. Um, I'm probably hogging this conversation more than I, you know, more than I should. No, uh, it's, it's interesting because you're the, the expert in this field. Yeah, but, the, 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 you know, the, the thing that we're facing now all the time is, is that um, putting together a, uh, uh, putting together a bundle of documents as the receiving party for a detailed assessment in a large case is a massive exercise. Yeah. Um, you know, you have to do it, otherwise you can't run the detailed assessment, right? You know, it, you know, it has to be done. Um, uh, and I think because we're still in the relatively early days of compilation of, of uh, you know, of bookmarks and indexed large PDF files, which is normally the format that these things go into courts in now, um, cost judges reflect that, you know, sort of slight newness and difficulty in, a, in quite in a reasonably generous approach to how much time they're going to allow for it. 
which all comes back to the cost of detailed assessment, which all goes into cost-benefit analysis of running a detailed assessment as opposed to ADR and so on and so forth. And everything is then, you know, and this is, Deutsche Bank is an extreme example of it because I haven't seen a case that big before where the, the, the paying party has decided to dig in to the extent that this paying party has done. Now, whether that has worked for them I don't know, because, I mean, you know, we don't see the balance sheet at the end of the day yet, or we may never do, of actually what that 70% means in cash terms. They have actually recovered in terms of their cost of detailed assessment, but it's going to be a massive sum. Um, and, you know, how much that uh, 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 adds to the 60% or whatever it is that they recovered, or 60 or 70% they recovered the bill overall, and whether it was worth it. For the paying party, I would suggest it will end up still being not having been worth it for the paying party. Um, but, you know, but nevertheless, a massive amount of unrecovered cost for the receiving party as well. It's a, it's, it's a no-win situation. It seems to me, either side. I, I got the impression it was um, uh, revenge by Mr. Vic, who had been brought in as a a non-party, but third party under a third-party cost order. Yes, yeah. uh, if you like, the moving spirit behind the defendant, which had um, been <coughs> unsuccessful. And uh, so he thought, right, I'm going to get my own back and, and, and just take every every single yeah. point. Yeah. It, I mean, in terms of lessons to be learned, it, it's obviously, um, I, I suppose the, the point of cases like this is that we can use hindsight and say, would it have been better for the, the receiving parties team to sit down at the very beginning of the case and say, look, guys, this is a big thing. I want better time recording um, for practice management systems to be adjusted in different ways or anything like that? Or is it just one of those things you have to say, oh, well, um, try and do better next time? Well, uh, yes, I mean, in a way, it's a sort of, it, you know, it's a little bit like when when law firm clients come to us because they've got relationships that turn sour and there's going to be a solicitor's act assessment on a big bill. So it's the opposite of the lottery, you know, it's going to happen to somebody, you know, at some stage and you just got to, you know, you just got to deal with it. Um, whether that means that you fundamentally change your working practices because of, you know, the, you know, the hundred year wave, you know, that comes along when you've actually got to do this. You know, there's a big difference still between um, large commercial law firms who, let's face it, do not rely on inter-parties costs for their income in the same yeah. way that personal injury practices do, say, for example. And, you know, and guess what? The large, well-organised personal injury practices are probably a lot, lot better at, uh, you know, recording their time in a granular and informative fashion because that's how they get paid. You know, that's, you know, that's just real life, isn't it? Um, and and uh, so, so, therefore, I, I, I don't see how the this is actually going to lead to um, necessarily a change in behaviour other than perhaps for the people that are directly involved in it. You know, people who, you know, I think once you've been through a painful detailed assessment, you probably, from a self-preservation point of view, you probably think, well, as far as I'm going to be concerned from now on, you know, then, you know, I am going to, um, be slightly more assiduous or informative or structured about how I keep records or so on, so or assign somebody to the team, you know, in a, uh, a you know a sort of legal project management sort of 
basis who uh, overlook overlooks this sort of stuff and is uh, you know a pain in the backside to everybody for all the right reasons all the way through the case. <laughs> I think that's right. Having talked about um, best injury firms, though, uh, perhaps we should move on to our third topic, which is qualified one-way cost shifting and some some changes coming up there, Alicia. Yes, thanks, Jeremy. Well. Um, yeah, this is an interesting topic potentially for people who don't do personal injury directly um, as their, their main area of work, because um, it is a, an area where there's been a huge amount of controversy and the courts have effectively said, um, the Supreme Court said in, in Ho, it's time for um, the Rules Committee to decide this. These are policy questions. And I think there is always that tension when it comes to a, a complex area in cost law. At what point are the are the rules fundamentally the thing that needs to change rather than the court's interpretation of those? So it may be we see a bit more of that, um, those sorts of comments being made by judges, that this is time for, for the Rules Committee to look at it again. Um, and for those of us who do practice in, in cases involving qualified one-way cost shifting, you'll, you'll know this well, but the intention was that there should be a system which allows there to be a limit on the costs that are um, that are paid out in personal injury cases and to try and make sure that both parties had a, a direct financial interest in the outcome. So there would be some kind of um, sanction for litigant behaviour that would enable that would encourage the parties not to bring unworthy personal injury cases and would encourage settlement of those cases. Um, but actually what's happened has not necessarily led to that result. Instead, we've had enormous amounts of, um, of cases considering the limits of that qualified one-way cost shifting protection. So it, until the rule changes come into force, we're expecting rules changes to come into force in 6th of April. Until that point, as the, on the law as it currently stands, um, defendants cannot enforce their costs orders against claimants um, in a number of situations where perhaps people would have thought they'd been able they would have been able to. So the defendant can't recover costs where a claimant has received sums by which were uh, paid out under a Tomlin order. That's Cartwright and Venduct. Can't um, set off defense costs against claimants costs orders. That's in Ho, the Supreme Court case I mentioned. Um, can't recover against cases settled by way of Part 36 offer. Um, we saw that in Harrison and University Hospitals. And also um, often can't recover even where there's been a very late discontinuance, um, even sometimes where fraud is alleged, but where fundamental dishonesty hasn't been proven. So defendants' ability to recover their costs are extremely limited. Now, there are some exceptions to Cox, which we don't need to go into here, but fundamentally, I think defendants have felt like they've had a bit of a rough deal um, under the Cox protection scheme. Um, and under the new regime, all of that will change in theory. Um, I think that what we're, at, we're actually going to see are a number of more um, disputes about this, but the defendants should have the right to enforce against costs awards made to the claimant, um, and agreements to pay, so settlement agreements. Um, and this will become particularly useful for defendants where they've won, for example, the costs of the detailed assessment. So they might now be able to enforce that order for their costs of the detailed assessment. Um, or where, for example, the claimant has discontinued and a deemed a cost order has been made. Now, one area that um, 
can actually pop up for for personal injury cases that doesn't seem so obvious. I've had a couple of cases involving this. Um, it's actually in data protection situations. So there are firms out there that encourage claims to be made against solicitors for data protection um, losses. And sometimes those, the, the heads of loss they're claiming are actually personal injuries. So it's not a classic personal injury case, but you can end up as a, as a solicitor firm or really any firm that might, fake, might have data protection obligations facing a case where fundamentally your ability to settle it is quite limited because it, it, the claim is being made for personal injuries and you're then caught within this Quox protection scheme. And so um, those sorts of cases have been quite challenging, I think, for, for solicitors. They often, um, they, they often are covered by, by their own solicitor's insurance, but it can be quite a challenging situation because it's not the type of case where people have always had the assumption that they are going to be able, they're going to be caught by quotes protection and it can catch people out. So we're expecting not just with data protection, but generally to see in personal injury cases um, an avalanche of claims before these rules take effect um, because everyone will be trying to issue before the 5th of April. And, um, but there are a number of issues that still remain that we don't know the answer to. One of them is, for example, how does this work in practice where there's a split between costs and damages? So let's imagine the claimant succeeds in obtaining an award of damages for 25 grand um, and an award of costs in the sum of 10,000 pounds. The defendant can set off any costs award against damages or costs, but the solicitors acting for the claimant then are going to have um, some exposure the question is how much so should the defendant's costs award be set off against the damages first, which will disadvantage the claimant client, or should they be set off against the costs orders first, which would um, then put the claimant's solicitor's costs at risk before any damages are affected? Um, so if it's, the, if it's the former, then obviously the claimant loses out. If it's the latter, then the solicitor loses out. And the question, those questions, as far as I know, on the draft rules, there's no um, there's no clarity about how that will work in practice. So really, that's going to come down to the solicitor's retainer with their clients, I suspect, as to who is at risk first if the defendant's able to enforce their cost orders. And it could make a big difference. Um, you could see a, a claimant walking away with nothing, or you could end up with a claimant walking away with quite a lot, but the, the solicitor's having taken the hit. So... Um, so that could have quite quite a big impact um, on the viability of running these cases for, for those sorts of claimant um, personal injury firms. And another question... Okay, looking at the bigger picture, what, what mm. do you think? Um, and clearly the, the, the scheme, which is the Jackson scheme, was Cox has brought in, leaving claimants virtually immune um, to um, claims against any costs that they yeah. incurred, that, that they were entitled to. Um, and at the same time, abolishing recoverability, particularly of ATE premiums, which is what claimants would otherwise have done to protect themselves against defendants' costs. Mm. Um, take away that scheme by making costs to which the claimants are entitled um, vulnerable to set off um, and, and to, the, to, to set off and therefore not being recovered. Um, 
you change the balance, the dynamics enormously. Yeah. Uh, and although on, 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 at one level it seems that, oh, well, what's good for the goose should be good for the source for the Sioux, source for the gander. But um, claimants and defendants aren't in the same position. The whole point of Jackson's reforms was that defendants generally are large insurance companies, et cetera, mm-hmm. et cetera claimants are not. And so to this was the balance that he, he sought to achieve. That seems to me to have been thrown out by this. So you will end up with a system where claimants are probably going to have to take out AT insurance at great expense mm. and um, be much more vulnerable to cost. Possibly it'll be a deterrent to bringing claims in the first place. I don't know. What's your view about that? Yes, I think there are real risks here for claimant for, um, claimants and claimant firms because there are a number of more risks in bringing a case. You know, one of the a clear example for it is that fundamentally the risk of bringing a case that looked like it had reasonable prospects at the start, but where it over time it becomes clear that the claimant's not going to win. On the rules as they currently stand, you can discontinue with basically no real risk of, of actually having to pay out anything to the defendant. But if you've got um, a case where there has been, there's now a deemed cost order, say the claimant has received a cost order during the course of the case that's covered some of the costs incurred so far, well, that those that cost award would be vulnerable to being um, offset by any by the deemed cost order in in the defendant's favour. So the the balance of risk is very very different. It means that people are going to be a lot more cautious about taking on claimant cases where they don't already have a clear understanding of of the merits, which requires a lot more upfront payments out to get expert evidence to, to bottom out more difficult mm. aspects of the case. And fundamentally, these cases are usually run on, on a shoestring for lower value personal injury cases. You know, some are subject to fixed cost regimes, those that aren't, which we're, we're looking at more really with these with these issues. Even those, there's not a, such a huge margin that it's possible to run lots of cases um, and make a large profit on personal injury claimant work at the moment. So I, I think you're quite right that there may well be a chilling effect in bringing personal injury claims. And um, obviously, defendants would be saying, well, there's um, if, if it's a problem, then that's because these claims should never have been brought in the first place. You know, strong claims would still succeed. But it, it does really um, suggest that there might be a need, more of a need for AT cover. The problem is that the premiums for ATE is so high that actually I'm not sure that in a lot of these personal injury cases, it could be justified, even if the case looks like a goer. Um, on a, often the awards simply are not high enough to make it worth running those risks and taking out those ATE premiums. Um, but it seems that the, the Rules Committee have completely accepted this as being a necessary step now. Um, for Cox protection so it will it will really change things potentially and and fundamentally it will be it will be a fertile source of work for cost lawyers because there will be these disputes of principle that come up on on the extent to which those changes operate I mean one of those questions is there was there's a decision in university hospitals which point where Lord Justice Coulson commented on the new rules which weren't in force of course when he was making his decision and it may be that the final version of the rule change will cover the point that he made, which is that as things stand, they talk about agreements to pay, but they don't mention Part 36 offers. We expect there'll be a change to take into account Part 36 offers. But if there isn't, then there's already a judgment saying that there's a question mark over how the rules will operate there. So um, 
the the real one thing that I haven't really worked out how the how this will work in practice is um where you've got settlement offers that are such as tumbling orders. How you know those are private to to the parties involved and other people don't know the terms. So how could a, a co-defendant party to that tumbling order be able to enforce against it? They shouldn't know any of the terms um at all. I, I do think that it will be interesting to see how the personal injury market responds to this. And fundamentally, to make this work, I would expect that payment personal injury firms will have to be very cautious about how much time they put into personal injury cases, um, particularly at the start, because they're going to be at risk of, of not being able to recover their fees. So, you know, it does make it does make the business case for bringing those claims, I think, a lot more challenging. Mm. Mm. Obviously, for the for very large personal injury cases, these will be these sorts of issues are going to be in the background, but it's not going to stop people from bringing, you know, the multi million pound personal injury claims. Those are unlikely to be affected. Um, and I imagine for for the types of for the people who might be listening who do only if they deal with personal injuries um, cases only deal with those very high value ones, then there still would be um, a good reason to bring or those sorts of very high payment value cases. Mm. Um, but there's still still a massive another massive shakeup for the claim and personal injury market. Um, only, only I suppose about ten years after the last one. Yeah. Um, and also, I think with with um, unforeseeable consequences. I mean, foreseeable to a degree, but how far um, the solicitors market will be prepared to accept another hit, which is mm. what it will be, because it's their costs that are not going to be recovered or. You know, are they going to be nice to the client and say, well, look, we're not going to claim these costs off you. Are the clients going to be able to afford it even if they have to uh, pay? It, it's a very, very um, difficult area. Um, I, I think I'd probably have been happier if the Supreme Court had decided the policy issue than the Rules Committee, which doesn't give any reasons. <laughs> yes, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Good point. Um, yeah, and it'll be interesting. But I think we've... Um, sorry. I, I was just thinking it'll be interesting to see if in other areas you have the Supreme Court or Court of Appeal being prepared to, to direct things off to the Rules Committee. Um, but it, it reminded me almost of Bosner, where you have, again, personal injury cases um, leading to these big disputes about um, um, on-cost issues and and looking very closely at the terms of those retainers. Um, and, and of course, in that case, we see the court saying, well, you should be using the legal ombudsman. So maybe the court's hoping there'll be fewer disputes coming to them um, and we'll, we'll be going off to the legal ombudsman instead. Um. Oh, well, you'll still be sorting out the consequences of this particular rule change. And so it's nice to know that the cost bar won't be out of work. That's quite right. Um, <laughs> on that, unless anything else anyone's got said, I'd like to thank Alicia very much for her very interesting talk this morning. And um, as I say, people who want uh, a, a note of what was said can get it. And it's also um, something that colleagues want to see the discussion is going to be available online. Um, so, Alicia, thanks very much and um, have, a, have a nice day. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, everybody.